cannot build the team, all the team to be NLP people. You cannot build yeah. all the team to be computer vision. You cannot build all the team to be statistical people. So you need to diverse. You need actually you need to bring people from different backgrounds, and that's what uh, my organization uh, includes. It includes people from all these backgrounds that I mentioned. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining. It is Wednesday morning in Australia, so Tuesday afternoon, evening for you. How are things going on your side of the world? Yeah, it's going well. Actually, we have a big storm today, so I hope there's uh, no interruption of the internet service during this chat, but we are having a big storm right now. <laughs> yeah, right. No, that, uh, hopefully hopefully we get through without any, any hiccups. Um, so... Uh, first of all, a lot of people have been have been asking me about, uh, well, first, how to pronounce your name. I've said Khalife. How, um, how, how wrong was I with my guess? No, it was, it was actually right. So it's, it's pronounced Khalife or Khalifa, so you can pronounce it either way. Amazing. So and, you did a good uh, job. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. And... Um, Man, I'm, I'm how, well, first I want to ask you about how you got to the point where you are now the director of data science at Home Depot. What was, what was the journey for you leading up to, to this point? Uh, I saw you worked in, in academia. You've worked, obviously, yeah. in data science for a long time. So for engineering, you started multiple organizations. Can you give yeah. us a, 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 an overview of yeah, your journey here? Absolutely. My pleasure. So I started my, like all my life was in computer science, just as this to beginning with. So I started with undergrad degree in computer science from Jordan University of Science and Technology back nice. home in Jordan. And then after that, I took an academia job, which is like a TA uh, teaching assistant in one of the local universities over there. In the meantime, I started the master's degree in computer science at the same school, Jordan University of Science and Technology. Back then, it was 2005, like between 2003, 2005. There wasn't, as you know, anything data science, right? But there was data mining, which was like very interesting topic to me. So I did actually my master's thesis back then on data mining, and mm -hmm. especially the topic was improving, if I still remember, improving uh, wood clusters quality using uh, user browsing time. So we try to use the user behavioral data of browsing websites and we try to predict uh, what are the kind of the outlayers in uh, classification system forward pages from mm -hmm. the browsing time and then kind of uh, improve the quality of those wood clusters by uh, using the kind of uh, unsupervised learning technique. So that was like back in 2005, right? And then after that, I, after wow. the master's degree, I started teaching in one of the universities uh, for about three years in Saudi Arabia. And then after that, I moved to the US to pursue the PhD degree. So I came to the US, started the PhD program in 2010, at the University of Georgia, UGA, uh, and uh, like my, my uh, research was focused on an interesting topic, which was glycoinformatics, which is basically uh, trying to use the carbohydrate data to predict or to diagnose cancer in early stages. So that was kind of the wow. research I was doing. So I kind of uh, mixed between the computer science and the glyco 
uh, glyconics field, and that's why it's called the glyconformatics, where we try to use machine learning to uh, help predicting uh, the uh, changes on the structure of the carbohydrates and thus to predict if there is, predict if there is gonna be a cancer accordingly or not, right? So that was the uh, topic of my uh, research during the PhD. And at the end, my thesis at that point, we're talking about now 2013, 2014, because yes, yeah, so at that point, big data and data science become a thing, you know, mm -hmm. it started to become a hype, especially Hadoop at that point. Yeah. It was very interesting. Like um, I remember that the first internship I got with a company called Career Builder here in the US, which is a job board for, uh, it's a recruitment system. So I joined them in 2013 as a PhD intern. And in that internship, basically they had a Hadoop cluster on-prem and they put like tons of data, you know? It's, it's a company that has been like collecting resumes and job postings for almost 20 years. Wow. So they have tons of data on that Hadoop cluster. And they basically said, we, we need to use that data. We don't know how to do, how, what to do with this data, right? So anyway, I joined them. I started working on that internship on how can we make sense out of all this data on the Hadoop cluster. Mm. So we worked on the uh, first phase of the semantic search which was the uh, project that I was assigned to, how can we use the search logs to come up with some semantic knowledge? Like when people search for Hadoop, what are the other semantically similar terms that we can um, generate like synonyms? For example, uh, synonyms in this, in this term or in this context is basically semantically related um, skills. So it was like, if people search for Hadoop, then machine learning become related, big data become related, you know, um, uh, data science become related. So the goal is when people come search for something, you wanna kind of expand that search and come back with the results that cover wide area of sem semantically similar stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So we started digging into the search logs using Hadoop map and reduce and try to see how can we get some semantic knowledge out of that. And that was very interesting, right? So yeah. I started my journey to, if I want to like say in the industry from that point, which was the first internship I got in 2013. Mm -hmm. And that's the first advice I give to anyone. Like if you are in a graduate school, if you are a student, make sure to pursue internship before graduation. It makes your life much easier after graduation, you know? So I then after that uh, did my PhD thesis on um, scaling up machine learning algorithms to handle big data. That was the topic of my thesis which was again, like how can we take legacy machine learning algorithms and scale them up using Hadoop uh, ecosystem, right? And then right. after that, back in, uh, continue, I continued working with the same company, Career Builder in 2014, we kept building that semantic search engine. And then I graduated and joined the company as full-time data scientist. Interesting, it was like the first, I think I was the second person who joined the company with the title data scientist, there wasn't. Anyway, title data scientist oh. company. So started my career from there. I was working on the search and recommendation data science. Mm -hmm. So uh, we built the semantic search engine that I just described uh, the basics about it. We actually built it from A to Z using at that point Hadoop ecosystem and machine learning models. We deployed it. It went into production for the B2B side of the business. And then after that, uh, I led the team to build the AI-based recommendation engine. We spent a couple of years building that recommendation engine. It was a graph-based recommendation engine. 
And then after we completed that project, at that point, I took the for, uh, a position with Home Depot as um, senior manager of core recommendation data science team. Moved to Home Depot in 2018, and uh, we did an amazing job with the core recommendation. We're going to talk absolutely about that in the retail. It's very interesting. It is way more challenging than the recruitment domain. Basically, when you talk about recruitment, you have resumes and jobs. Yeah. And that's it. But when you talk about retail, you have click stream, customers behavioral data, you have products, you have projects, you have images, you have text, you have voice. It is, it is amazing, you know, the data assets that you have in the retail. And absolutely, it's more challenging when you have all these data assets and you have to provide lots of different kind of recommendations and search capabilities for retail. So started uh, with Home Depot, as I said, uh, uh, overseeing the recommendation or leading the recommendation data science team. And then in May this year, actually was promoted to the director of data science. I oversee now the recommendation data science team, the search data science team, and the visual AI team under my org. So it's been, it's been an interesting journey, a great journey. And uh, I, I hope that everyone actually go through those challenges in your career because it really makes you uh, a better and stronger data scientist. Right, it definitely does, man. Well, congratulations on the on the promotion. Very, very Thank well you. deserved. Um, so, really, really keen to talk about the the different areas of of responsibility that you have uh, within Home Depot, the different teams that you just mentioned, and in any any types of initiatives or or. Uh, problem uh, solutions to problems that you can share with us. Uh, we we would love to hear some uh, some stories. But uh, if you can first say, yeah, what is the the overall um, responsibility remit, and then and then we can talk about some some of the uh, examples and use cases. Yeah, absolutely. So we are part of the online business of Home Depot, right? Mm-hmm. So we our focus is the e-commerce. So my org, the core data science org for the online, which as I said, includes search recommendation and visual AI is focused on mainly improving relevancy for search, improving relevancy for recommendation and using the visual assets that we have, images and videos to extract knowledge and uh, improve the customer experience overall. Mm. Um, The other part of the mission is basically provide more of personalized experience to our customers using the data assets that we have and using the data science techniques. So it is a group of research. Uh, it's, it's a research and development organization with uh, like very talented people from different backgrounds, like the teams, the team members came from top uh, research labs um, here in the US from the top schools. They, their research background, including NLP, including computer vision, including statistical analysis, including relational statistical analysis, um, including also information retrieval. So they came from a wide uh, background, like diversity is there in terms of their background. And that's very important, actually, when you work on retail, because as I said, the data assets that we have uh, is is actually, kind of has everything. It's, it has the text, it has images, it has videos, it has clickstream data, when we talk about that, the statistical analysis and significance, statistical significance. So it has all that kind of things, right? And you cannot bring someone who is only 
Like you cannot build the team, all the team to be NLP people. You cannot build yeah. all the team to be computer vision. You cannot build all the team to be statistical people. So you need to diverse. You need actually you need to bring people from different backgrounds. And that's what uh, my organization uh, includes. It includes people from all these backgrounds that I mentioned. So it is, it is an R&D organization, as I said, that conducts research on how can we use the cutting edge techniques in data science and AI to help providing the best personalized experience uh, for our customers and mm -hmm. to deliver the right product at the right time to the right person. Yeah, amazing. And I was, I was wondering about that, whether, whether or how much of it was established uh, or was up and running uh, before you joined the organization and how much is, is new sort of as um, that, that you're bringing in. But it sounds like the, the applications and the methods uh, the approaches that you're taking to solve the problems are is is what is completely new, um, yeah. And that's and that's using yeah really really cutting edge uh, techniques. Right. right. So so if you think of the retail, it's kind of uh, an old business, right? Like retail has been around for decades, mm. and as a result of that, the most of the retailers actually they still rely on lots of manual stuff. Even at this point, even with all this technology that we have, with the scale, web scale that we're talking about, believe me, many retailers still, still rely heavily on the manual stuff. And then our mission is basically, how can you change the mindset yes. and make those people believe in the automation and believe in the AI and believe in data science and believe in data-driven decisions? Because this wasn't the case. They've been running the business successfully for decades yeah. And now you come to tell them, oh, you know what? We can automate this. We can do this with machine learning terms that they never heard of. Mm. And absolutely, that's kind of uh, freak them out. So you need always to educate. And that's part of our also job as uh, leader, leaders of data science is to really educate the business partners and show them by examples and with data, the value that the data science and AI can deliver to these organizations. Because in their mind, we've been running this um, business for the kids successfully. Why do we need now to invest in this new thing called data science? Why do we need to invest in this called, thing called AI, right? So, uh, yeah, it is challenging at, when, at the beginning when you start to uh, actually yes. establish data science practice in, uh, in the retail industry. But uh, luckily, I guess now, because it is kind of a hype and everyone is talking about AI and data science and because uh, they have seen the return of investment in, in many places in the retail industry. Most of the companies now are willing actually to take kind of that route and invest in data science and give you an opportunity to prove that you can do something with the data that they have. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's fantastic. And, and, um, and I, I assume that in e-commerce, in the e-commerce space, uh, things are much, um, easily much more easily tracked and um and measured and that you can have a lot more uh, a lot more information about what's happening in, in the store which definitely helps to prove the value of data science um yeah. so can, can you tell us about some of the the work that you've been doing in the say in the search space uh first and uh, have you have you brought into home depot some of your semantic uh semantic search and maybe ontologies and have you brought some of some of that side into the search space yeah absolutely absolutely so um, 
the search engine in, in, in most of now retail actually is, or let's say uh, was actually built and established using either like Solar or Elastic, those like open source search engines, right? Because mm-hmm. everyone now is switching to the open source technology. Yeah. Um, the search was mainly keyword based search, right? Which means like whatever you put in the search box, whatever like Solar is going to do with that by tokenization, stimming and um, and and uh, uh, then matching based on the TFIDF, those kind of the default things that you get out of the box when you get a search engine. So this is most of the search and retails like was just using those uh, out of the box techniques, right? Now with the search data science team that we build uh, in this organization, what we try to do now is, as you said, is to actually start moving from keyword-based search and string matching towards semantic and meanings. So we started to uh, work on query understanding. So query understanding is very important topic in any search engine where I need to understand when people put on the search box, for example, Rayubi, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm using some terms in the US popular, but maybe not in Australia, but Rayubi or Milwaukee uh, power tool or a drill, right? I need to understand in this case yeah. that Power tool by itself is a thing. It is not two words. It's not power and tool, right? I need to understand that Ryubi or Milwaukee are actually brands, you know, mm-hmm. so they're not just keywords. Um, I need also then when I go to do the matching, I need to understand, okay, what are the synonyms to the power tool when people write power tool? Mm-hmm. Is it a drill? Is it, you know, all the other things, the variations, the synonyms of this keyword. So, Query understanding has been one of the areas that we focused on. How do we better understand the query which the customers put in the search box? It is more complicated when you go towards the tail search, which is yeah. when you start asking questions, mm. like how to fix a hole in a wall. You know? So you, you get those kind of questions in the search box. And because in, on our website, we actually not just have products, we have also project guides, which actually for... Uh, the, the theme of the business of Home Depot is do it yourself, right? Which is like we customers who are not pros or not professionals, um, they try to do the projects themselves, right? So as because of that, Home Depot offer lots of um, uh, project guides, content. It is not products. So we we have an, an an article and a video that shows me how to fix a hole in a wall. Mm-hmm. You have another video that shows you how to install a faucet or a vanity. You know, so. This content, usually people come to ask questions. They're looking for the content, not the product. So how do you distinguish when people uh, asking in the search box for a product or a content, right? That's that's something that data science needs to play a role in, which is to classify the queries themselves. This is content or is this product? Mm -hmm. And then when you you, uh, have those kind of lengthy questions sometimes, how to parse the questions, and extract the products mentioned there or the problems mentioned there and, and uh, the brands and you know, all that kind of um, uh, named entity resolution um, problems that we try to solve also with data science. So you need to parse the query correctly. You need to tag the entities in the query correctly with their entity, uh, with, with their named entity. Uh, entities that we have in the system and then behind the scene as you said the ontology now it's this is absolutely uh, a big investment because in order to connect the dots you need to have that ontology that says this term 
is similar to that term when you have synonyms, right? Um, or this product is used in that project, or uh, this product is similar to that product. So this ontology needs to be behind the scene um, as a knowledge graph, which basically power uh, the answer of some of those questions, right? So we are kind of taking that shift from keyword-based search and from string matching more towards semantic matching and meanings. And with the deep learning evolution now, as you would guess, this work also kind of become uh, kind of old school in search, even like parsing and query parsing and understanding. And the, now the direction is how can we get embeddings that actually can do that magic instead of parsing the query yourself and label or tag the entities inside the query and do the matching uh, based on that. I want to take the query. I want to generate embeddings out of it using a deep learning model. And then I'm going to go match that vector that represents the query now against the pool of vectors that represent products and content. So this is kind of the next generation of search that we also are investing in at this point. So this summarizes actually where the search is heading in the industry. Yeah. It's from semantic using the query parsing, query understanding, query rewriting and expansion uh, to, towards deep learning and vector-based, which is uh, the, the next generation that we're working on. So this is what's going on in our search world today. That's, that's great. So do you think that the, the semantic approach will be used less over time and we'll have more of the you know, vector and embeddings types of approaches or do you think they'll be generally complementary? Yeah, I think uh, so. The, if, you, if, if, if you look at the research papers that published recently by Microsoft Bing or Google Search, like you will see that this is the trend now, which is switching towards deep learning and embeddings instead of doing the parsing and, and, and tagging and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, however, from the experience, I think when you have uh, domain knowledge in-house, yeah. domain knowledge is not usually like easy to be integrated with deep learning models, right? Mm -hmm. So besides, besides like providing labeled data from the domain experts, that's something. But like in having the knowledge that those merchants or the people uh, who have been doing this business for the kids, having that knowledge represented somewhere, it is easier to represent their knowledge mm -hmm. using the semantic search uh, capabilities that we talked about, about how to parse the query, how to tag those those entities in the query, and and what to show, what to not show. For example, with with, with the specific queries, I think if you want to leverage the domain knowledge that you have in house, then you need to come up with a hybrid technique or hybrid strategy where vector search is going to be good absolutely for the tail queries for the tail search, right? So when I have things I never seen before, when I have like lo over long questions that people put in the search box, parsing and, and tokenizations and all those things most likely gonna fail miserably. So the best bit in this case would be, let's fall back to the deep learning and let the deep learning do the magic of generalization by actually trying to understand what is the, what is the meaning behind this, behind this question? What is the context behind this question on the search box? But for, for the queries that you are pretty much sure uh, what they are about, they're very popular in your website, you know exactly how to handle them with, with the parsing and tokenizations. And you don't, I, I think you don't need to uh, uh, kind of retire that system for this kind of queries. 
So it's going to go, my vision, and it's going to go at least uh, for the near future hand in hand where you have still have semantic search somehow that does the parsing and for the, for the popular queries. And then for the tail queries, you kind of rely on the deep learning to answer those questions. That's great. That's great. And what, what are the ways that you uh, work with the, with the domain experts to, to sort of get their knowledge into, into the ontology mm -hmm. and the semantic layer? How, how does that work? Yeah, so you need to f close the feedback loop. That's, that's the, the way. So we have like platforms that was developed in-house where the, like those people with the domain knowledge can actually get into um, uh, running some queries, look at the results, and then they get to kind of provide their feedback uh, about kind of uh, what we uh, give thumbs up, thumbs down, what they need to push up, what they need to push down, you know. And that kind of feedback then can be leveraged to improve the training of those uh, machine learning models that does the parsing and the labeling or the tagging of the entities in ER and all, all that kind of thing. So it's about closing the feedback loop. You need to have a system where those people with domain knowledge actually can uh, look at the results that your system generate or return to the customers. And then they can provide a feedback which then can, this feedback can then be feeded into your algorithms to make it smarter and better over time. That's great. I love it. And when it comes to, when it comes to search, um, how, how do you measure success? How do you measure that you're going on the right, on the right path? Sorry if it's a, if it's oh, a tricky question. <laughs> no, that's, that's the million dollars question that every company <laughs> wants to answer, right? So you have, what we learned is that you have to rely on two kinds of metrics. You need to rely on, or you need actually to track uh, the business metrics and the lab metrics. Okay. So when it comes to developing new algorithms, mm. then in order to understand if this algorithm has potential or not before you roll it into A-B test or into production, then you need to run some lab metrics. The popular ones as, you know, precision recall, F1, NDCG, all of those kind of metrics that we mm. use. And then after that, you need also to look into the business metrics. So maybe there is a, the, your algorithm and all the lab metrics is doing a wonderful job. But in A-B test or in production, actually it is hurting the business metrics. The business metrics we're talking about click-through rate, conversion rate, you know, all those kind of uh, numbers that at the end map to the business performance, the, the dollar values. So if you build something and then the lab metrics are good, but the business metrics are not good, then definitely it is not the right model that you need to push into production. And if you build something that is not good from the lab perspective and the lab metrics, then you would predict that most likely it's not gonna perform well uh, in production. So, so you need to balance between when to take kind of the, uh, the model into A-B test uh, you, you maybe like have, okay, if it is a flat, like if I can in the lab metrics, at least like map what exists in, in production. But I know that I added some capabilities that have a potential to improve business metrics. Then at that point, the AB test will be the judge. But if your lab metrics outperform the existing one, then it is eligible to go absolutely to the AB test. And then the AB test, you, you don't need to track the lab metrics anymore. You start tracking the business metrics and you see if it's actually going to perform well as well or better than the existing uh, strategy in production yeah that's fantastic and to do and to do the a b testing in these type of cases though do, do you have a 
a centralized platform that helps with experimentation, or is it up to the each individual project and, and deployment to, to track the improvements of, of their work? Great question. It is a centralized organization or team that actually orchestrate the A-B test. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason behind that is that if you let each team run their own A-B tests, you have two risks here. Mm-hmm. The first risk is that uh, some tests going to kind of interleave or overlap. So if you are testing a feature and there is another test going on at the same time for the same kind of um, module or for the same page on the website, then there most likely going to be a conflict there. You don't know when you get the results if this is because of your feature or because of the other feature that was tested at the same time. The second risk that you take if you do that, that um, A-B test separately is that who's going to interpret the results and be objective about it, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that when we build something, we become kind of attached to it. It's your baby. That's right. And then, and then when you test it, you got to try to find any way to justify the results that you're doing good. You're doing amazing job. You know, our model absolutely outperformed the existing one. And that's, that's, that's dangerous. You know, I think we all went to throw that uh, some, at some point in our career that I built something. I'm so attached to it. I don't want to do any changes to it. I believe it's the best thing in the world and I want to just get it out. Mm. But when you have a centralized team, actually, you don't have a word to say about the A-B test. Mm. It is absolutely separate team. They're going to interpret the results. They're going to report the results. And no one then can actually uh, be biased towards their model versus the existing model, the control or the test group, right? So that's the benefit that we got actually by centralizing the test uh, with a separate team. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good, really good. And tell me about um, what you guys have been doing on the, on the visual search side. Yeah, visual is, is really like very interesting and innovative field mm, uh, mm. in our org. So we have been doing lots of uh, great things and uh, our team actually has a tutorial at KDD that got accepted. So, um, you know, KDD in mid-August. So they will be given actually a tutorial uh, and they're going to talk about some of these cases where we use computer vision in our models and our uh, use cases. So overall, I can tell you, uh, for example, um, extracting visual features from images is, mm-hmm. is one of the important use cases that we have. So sometimes you rely on the people who onboard a new item into mm-hmm. the system to tell you what is the color of this fridge, what is the uh, color finishing, what is the, uh, the style of a furniture, mm-hmm. you know, of this couch. But you would imagine that since this is a manual process to kind of enter all those uh, attributes manually, then most likely you're going to, uh, it, there are going to be like lots of missing values, right? There are going to be some people who actually onboard the new items. They don't have time to fill up all those attributes. So they're just going to fill up uh, the uh, essential ones and they will not fill up the other ones, right? So it's important then for most of our like models that rely on the visual appearance and recommendation. Um, if you are shopping for a ch- uh, chandelier, or if you're shopping for a couch and you want to see similar ones, right? You are interested in similar chandeliers, similar uh, couches or sofas. Then at that point, the color, color finishing, those visual attributes are very important for the uh, algorithm to perform well. If If they are missing, the values are missing, then basically you can do nothing about it, right? So 
the visual AI team is actually providing that capability of, okay, give me the image of the product and we're going to extract those visual features automatically instead of asking people to enter them manually into the system, right? So that's one use case. And the other use case, which I just mentioned, we call it the visual recommendation, is when you come to the website and we know you are interested now in this specific um, uh, vanity or in this specific chandelier or in this specific couch, how can I show you similar ones? And, and I mean by similar here, those things are like usually you don't, you, you want to see visually similar things. You don't want to actually see things similar by the type, the category they belong to, the brand. You need visually similar things, right? So that's what we refer to as visual recommendation where I can take then the image of this, of this uh, product and I can apply the computer vision algorithms and the deep learning algorithms to find the visually similar products that I can show you as a recommendation, as part of the recommendation. And it is on our website. If you go to homedepot.com, you go to any of product page, there is more like this module uh -huh. on the website. This is actually the algorithm uh, visually similar that we're talking about here. This was uh, built by the visual AI team. So many use cases like that, uh, you know, on also like we have a very innovative uh, app called the Color App at Home Depot, where you can actually download the app and in your house, in your place, if you wanna see actually, okay, the painting now in my room is white. And I'm thinking of changing the color maybe to uh, let's say uh, a pink or I'm planning to change it to blue. Which one is, is more suitable, more beautiful, yeah. right? So what you can do with our Color App is you can just point the camera towards the wall and then you can choose the color that you want and it's gonna show it on your wall how it's gonna look like. You know? So it's kind of virtual painting of your, of your room and you can see how the color is gonna look like in your room uh, given whatever like uh, stuff you hang on the wall, objects or things. So it's gonna kind of show you how the wall is gonna look like. You know? So nice. that's, that's another kind of uh, example of what we do with the visual AI team. So that color app is available, I think, on, on iOS, and, then, and you can test it yourself, or as I said, just you can point to the wall, and then you can see any color, how it's going to look like on your walls. So those are the things that we do with the Visual AI team. Man, that's fantastic. Uh, what, what I love about the, the first application that you spoke about, where uh, people have to enter information manually, and they might not enter uh, everything, the... I assume that one of the ways that it works is that the algorithm learns from all the information that has been entered manually and then is able to fill in the gaps Absolutely. and find any errors and, and there's sort of like that feedback loop within that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And, and on the, on the visual search, uh, and, and especially the, the more, uh, the find more products like this, that's, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. How, how um, obviously, whatever you can share, but how does that work behind the scenes? Uh, what does it look like uh, to get that functionality out to people? Yeah, so usually, like, we, uh, we work with product managers and engineers. So the data scientists usually take the responsibility of building the model, the machine learning model, training the model, validating and then even go all the way towards testing. And then once that model proved that it works, then the data scientists work with the engineers at that point, mm -hmm. where the engineers take that work and they kind of refactor the code. You know, data scientists are not actually good software engineers. They're not good developers, let's face it. Yeah. 
And many people in the data science, they didn't, they didn't actually come from computer science background. So they know absolutely like they are very smart. They know how to design those sophisticated machine learning models in Python, or they know how to write the, the TensorFlow. But the code they write usually is good for uh, validating and testing, but it's not good to be serving production environment where you talk about the web scale. So the code needs to be scaled up, the, work, the, the, the code needs to be clean, needs to be uh, unit tested, you know, all those kind of things that uh, uh, in order to have a production ready code, the data scientists don't do it. So what happened is that engineers actually take care of that. So they, the data scientists hand over their models to the engineers and the engineers, we call them the, the machine learning engineers in the company. They basically take that and they do all the requirements or the required job to make it production ready. And then they deploy it into production. So it's kind of a workflow from the data scientists, the engineers, and there is the product managers who actually manage this kind of uh, workflow. Mm -hmm. They orchestrate the work between the data science and engineers. And this is how we, how we work. No, that's great. That's really good. And, um, and so, so I guess technically the, the products, the, the getting the models to production that sits in, in a different team. Is yes. that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Nice. That's, right. That's good. Um, it's, it's helpful to have that, that workflow and that, that division. Um, so, uh, so towards the beginning, you said that you had, um, search, the visual AI and the other one was recommendation. Is that right? Yes. yes. So how, how is the recommendation uh, different and can you tell us a bit more about it? Oh yeah. So recommendation was my baby. So because uh, like I joined the company as the senior manager of that team. So I, yeah. I started the, like I built the team and we have done an amazing job over a course of a year, almost two years now. Mm -hmm. So the recommendation, if you think now on um, Home Depot, customers usually, once they come to the website, to educate them and to expand kind of uh, their uh, horizon about what can they buy or what are what can they uh, um, get to complete the project they're working on. Because we're talking about home improvement at this point, right? Home improvement means that people usually have a project in their mind when they come to the website. So it is they start with search and then they after search they start engaging with recommendations. So those are like the two core functionalities that any e-commerce website needs absolutely to focus on. Yeah. So we talked a lot about search and we, we said like we are doing lots of things on the search side, same on the recommendation. If you think of recommendation, so you, you usually talk about like two types of recommendation, complementary products, which means if I'm now here buying a power tool, a drill, then, and it is wireless, then absolutely I need the battery that goes with it to make it work, right? So this is what we refer to as complementary product. So if I buy product X, then the product Y is important to go with the product X or, you know, it's a complement to product X. On the other side, alternative means, okay, so if I'm now interested in a specific faucet, but maybe the price is not within my budget. So, the alternative job is to show you now other faucets mm -hmm. that can actually uh, do the job for you. And they are from different price ranges. 
right? So it is, some are lower, some are higher. So you can, you have variety of options. So it's like educate you about all the options that we have in our inventory for this specific product that you're interested in now. So you can have more than one option. You don't feel that you're stuck with only this option. So this is what we refer to as alternative recommendation. So by just taking those two cards, you can do a lot. You can build lots of modules here and there. So when you talk about complementary recommendations, in this case, we're talking about accessories. So when you come to buy a product, uh, like, um, uh, as we said, uh, vanity, okay? With the vanity, maybe there, there is the uh, handles, the knobs of the cabinets, you know, that can go with it. So those are kind of accessories. With, with the uh, power tool, if you would like to get the, uh, the, uh, the pit, right? The drill pits. So those are kind of accessories that goes with it. So you have, you can generate recommendations on the accessory category. You can generate recommendations in the collection. Collection means I'm shopping now, I'm working on a bathroom renovation and I like this faucet or I like this. So the collection means, okay, how can I now show you all the things, the shower head, the shower uh, knob, the uh, towel bar, the towel ring, everything that goes into your bathroom that match the style and the color and the color finishing and the brand. So this is what we refer to as collection. That's another kind of form of, of recommendation that we built and the complementary product side as well. Um, also like very popular recommendation, all the e-commerce websites frequently bought together. When I'm buying this product, A, like based on what the other customers purchase with this product, frequently bought together is there, right? It's another complementary recommendation. So we built all of these capabilities in-house over the course of two years. And also one of the very important uh, recommendations, as I said, is the alternative, which is how to educate the customer about the uh, other things, the other options that they have in our inventory. And for yes. that, you can think of, you are interested now in a specific refrigerator and it's about $2,000. So how about if I show you, maybe you, you all guys uh, notice that in the e-commerce website, you usually have kind of a module where you have four, products in a table where you can compare between those similar refrigerators, right? So I'm going to show you the one that you are interested in now and three or four similar ones with different price ranges. And I'm educating you. I'm showing you actually the features of all of those. So you can compare. So yes. if I pay $200 more on this one, what do I get? If I pay $300 less, what do I lose? You know, what do I yes. uh, lose by choosing that one? So, this kind of uh, module that actually educates you about what you get and what you lose based on the price range, if you choose this price versus that price or the similar products, this is one of the algorithms that also data science built for alternatives. Um, also the visually similar, which we just talked about, that's another example of the alternative recommendations. Okay, I like this chandelier, but maybe again, the price is not mine or the, the brand I don't trust. I need to know what are the other similar changes that you have in your inventory that I can buy, right? So those capabilities, we refer them to them as alternatives. And, and with, if you go to the Home Depot website, I believe every page you're going to hit, you will see recommendation modules somehow in one of those pages. So if you are on the homepage, there is recommend categories that may interest you. This is a recommendation algorithm. There is recommend today's recommendation for you, which is a personalized recommendation module. Uh -huh. That's for you. This is also an, a different algorithm. 
if you see the top deals of the day, this is another recommendation algorithm. Then you go down uh, the funnel, towards the bottom of the funnel, you search for something with the search results page at the, at the bottom of the search results page, we're gonna show your recommendation based on the search query that you put in the search box as well. Yeah. You go to the product page, you're gonna see tons of recommendation modules, alternatives, complementary accessories frequently brought together, right? So everywhere you go on the website, there are recommendation algorithms and, or recommendation modules. Each one of those actually has an algorithm behind the scene that power it. Incredible. And how does, or, or do the, do the customer interactions with the website, um, even if they're not purchasing, but if they're, if they're browsing or adding to cart mm -hmm. or replacing products with others, does that information feed into the recommendation algorithms um, as a signal that something might be a, an alternative product for, for one another? Yeah, absolutely. Like all the customer behavioral data, it's aggregated. So we don't actually know at the personal level who did this or who did that, right? It's aggregated. So all you know is like uh, uh, there is uh, a visitor X who actually viewed those products, visitor Y who viewed that product. You don't know who visitor X or who visitor Y, right? Because we most likely talk about, as you said, like people who come to the website, they are not authorized. Like they are not logged in. So they just yeah. come browse the website and leave, right? So you don't know who are those customers, but you have the signals. You have their behavioral data, the click stream. And that click stream is absolutely a treasure. It's a great source of knowledge that you can use to improve your algorithms of what goes together as complementary, what goes together as um, alternative. So absolutely, yes, click stream is, is very important source of data for both search and recommendation, not just recommendation. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we have, um, Lucas is asking, how do you choose between all the recommendation algorithms to use when displaying recommendations to customers? So each module on the recommendation on the website, each container, it is powered by a specific algorithm, not multiple algorithms. Right? Uh -huh. And then the algorithm that we choose for each container, it's based on what the container is about. So if this container is about showing, as I said, like uh, similar products and compare between them, then we need to find, we need to power it by one of the alternative recommendation algorithms. Mm -hmm. If it is accessories container, then at that point, it's the accessories algorithm, right? Now, the recommendations that you see on the website though, it doesn't mean that it, it is the same for all the customers because mm -hmm. it is, gonna be kind of personalized or localized based on where you are accessing the, our website. So if you are from California and, or Florida, let's say, and you're looking for uh, a water heater, then, and I'm talking about US states here, but Florida is a very hot state. That's why it's yeah. the, the, the deep in the South. It's very hot. So people when they search for water heater, most likely they don't care if it is like electrical water heater or gas because gas is cheaper, but because they don't use it so much, it's already hot state. So electric is fine. But if you go to New York or if you go to Michigan, you're accessing our website, I'm going to show you a recommendation of water heater. I need to show you gas water heaters mm -hmm. because the electrical ones are like, they're going to cost you a lot of money uh, every month in the bills. So usually people prefer gas, right? So it's not going to be the same. The container, everyone see the same container accessories. The algorithm behind the scene, is the same algorithm, but the recommendation that you see is yeah. not the same. 
Yeah. It's personalize or localize or segmentize. So it's 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 not the same. Yeah, exactly. No, that is brilliant. And with with um how do you pick what to prioritize, what projects to focus on with everything that that could be done? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, yeah, prioritization I think is is always a a, a tricky problem to yes. solve for data science teams. Um, how how do you guys approach it in your teams? So we're allowing our product managers to identify the business opportunities, right? Yep. And according to the business opportunities, this is what drive usually the prioritization. Plus the customer pain point, like mm. what is the uh, really like current customer pain points that we should solve as soon as possible. Uh, so those are like the two factors that usually impact our decision of prioritization. Mm. The business opportunity plus customer's pain point. Yeah. How many customers are we going to help if we solve this problem? And then also on the business side, what is the opportunity from the business metrics perspective, the dollar values that we're going to gain if we implement that feature for this algorithm? So those are the two factors that then come into the picture. And usually, as I said, we rely on our product team to come up with those, priorita- with those opportunities prioritized. And we as data science, if we think that there is an R&D project that we should do, Mm-hmm. which is not on the product um, uh, roadmap, then what we do is we kind of kick off our R&D project aside uh, without kind of uh, uh, having that as part of the roadmap of this quarter, the next quarter. It's an R&D project. We didn't know what would be the output of it, but we know that at the end it is mapped. We can map it to one of the use cases or one of the, of the uh, customer pain points. So this is how we do the, R&D, aside from the product manager's roadmap, when we cannot actually fit everything in the roadmap, then we support the roadmap first. And then second priority for us is conduct a a needed recession development for long-term investments. Brilliant, that's really good. And uh, a related question from Colith. They say, is there tension from other parts of the business that they may want to buy data science products from third parties instead uh, instead of dealing with your team? And if that happens, how do you manage this tension? Oh, great question. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, so uh, I think we are not against like using vendors whenever there is a need, right? And I think this is a message to all the data science leaders and data scientists. I can tell you at the beginning of my career, I was like so sensitive to that topic when someone says, oh, I'm gonna like mm. bring a vendor to do this thing for, I was like, oh, we should do it. We can do it, you know. But uh, it turned out actually that sometimes you have a limited capacity in-house. Like you don't have 200, 300 people doing data science in your team, right? So you have limited capacity in-house. And the things that you can do, as we just mentioned, a lot, right? The business opportunities usually are a lot. So if there is something that a vendor can provide or offer for now, which your team cannot actually get into, why not? They can come in, they can do it, and the business will get the benefit of it. By the time we get to that work or to that kind of uh, uh, problem to solve, we have already a baseline, which is that vendor's algorithm, right? So that vendor algorithm has been powering. We, we have the metrics that we collected, the performance of that algorithm, so we can use it as a baseline and when we develop something, we go ahead and we test it against it. 
what I learned in my career is that whenever you go talk to the business people, if you go just talk theory, they will not listen. If you talk with data, they will listen. Absolutely. Yeah. What they care about, they care about the business metrics, right? Yeah. So if I go tell them, we can do it, we should do it, they will never listen, right? They will never yeah. listen. Yeah. But, but after I, I built the algorithm and I test it against the vendor which they brought uh, to run that, that model or that module, and I show them by numbers, hey, here is the A-B test, shows that our algorithm is performing as well or, or surpassing or outperforming the vendor algorithm, they will absolutely, absolutely give you the support to retire the vendor algorithm and switch to the in-house. And this is what happened. When I moved to Home Depot, hmm. most of the recommendation was powered by third party, the hmm. majority, right? Mm-hmm. Over a course of two years now, we have retired all of those algorithms powered by third party and we switched to the in-house. But I couldn't, when I joined, just say, retire everything, we're gonna get you all the models in, in, in two, three months. Come on, I mean, you know? So just be realistic and be open-minded when it comes to working or dealing with vendors. It is not always bad. It is good because it is a baseline that you can measure the performance of your in-house algorithm against. And that gives you actually insight. How do, how do you do compared to the market, right? You don't want to feel that, you know, I'm doing an amazing job, but if anyone else from the market come to run the same module or do the same work, they're absolutely going to be like maybe, you know, uh, two times better than you. You don't want to be in that situation. You know, yes. you want to always make sure that you are aligned with the, with the market and you are outperforming the, the, the algorithms in the market. So, and you cannot get that by just living in a bubble that we're going to build everything in house. You have to be open to testing against vendors and third party uh, providers. That's a really good way to look at it. That, you know, if there's something there, it can provide you a benchmark. If something else is coming in, it's a good comparison point. And yeah. it makes it makes um, it makes the business better to have those those Absolutely. different proof points. And, and as a data science team, also, I'm sure you get better through that comparison and um, learning. That's awesome, man. Well done on, on replacing all those algorithms. Oh, yeah. Already. I know. I'm so proud of that. <laughs> oh, man. 100%. I was, and which, which um, I know, I know we're, we're out of, almost out of time. So, uh, which leads me to my last question with, with everything that you've done in your career, what are you most proud of? Yeah. If you ask me what I'm, I'm proud of, I think uh, semantic search, which I mentioned at the beginning, that was absolutely one of the things that I'm very proud of. And, with the retail today, I'm very proud of building the team. And then, as I said, like moving the recommendation totally to in-house at home mm-hmm. people after it was majority powered by third party. Over a course of a year and a half, we were able to move 95% of the algorithms in-house and now we are 100% powered by in-house. Incredible, man. What, yep. what an amazing achievement. Um, Khalife, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for your time, for sharing your journey, all this super interesting work you're doing at Home Depot. But I am super, super impressed there. Uh, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing all that with us today. Thank you for having me. It's really great to chat with you and I'll be happy to uh, offline like answer any questions if people would like to connect with me on LinkedIn and send their questions, I'll be happy to answer that. 
But again, thanks for the opportunity. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Thanks everyone for joining. Enjoy your day. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.